We're continuing our series that we started a few weeks ago uh, called Villains, thinking about the villains in Scripture. And this is a series that uh, a, a friend of mine, Jonathan Stormit, had, had the idea to start this series. And uh, he reached out to me and was seeing if I was interested in a group of us. said, yeah, that sounds interesting. And so uh, he asked uh, some of us to think of some of these villains in Scripture. And this is actually the first one uh, that we came up with. Who do you think would be the first villain that we would think of in Scripture? What do you guys think? There's some good, there's some, there's some good answers to this question. The snake. It could be the snake. Although that would be a really complex sermon. Where did all that come from? That would be really hard. So thanks. Austin. Austin's going to be preaching next week. He can handle that, actually. Go ahead and enjoy preaching that one, Austin. Um, actually, the, the one that we came up with, you all have said some, some great ones. I think I might have heard it, um, was, is Cain. Because actually, interestingly enough, in the story of Cain and Abel, we get the first mention of sin. It's actually not mentioned as sin in the story of Adam and Eve, but we get the first mention of sin in the story of Cain and Abel, which I'll talk about uh, in just a minute. But a few years ago, I saw this story from uh, uh, my, one of my favorite NFL players, J.J. Watt. He uh, was on the Texans for his career. He just got uh, signed by the Arizona Cardinals. I am a Texans fan, which is very unfortunate. We are terrible right now, and we're also going through some off-the-field drama that you really shouldn't look up if you don't know about it, but it's a really weird story. And J.J. Watt, it likes to be on Twitter and encourage people on Twitter. And he tweeted about this kid who was seven years old who sent his autographed peewee jersey to J.J. Watt, one of the great players in the NFL at the time. And he said, you're going to want to hold on to this because one day this is going to be worth a lot of money. And here's the picture that J.J. Watt uh, tweeted and, and put out there. Uh, it's this picture. The kid was seven years old. His name was Anthony Tarantelli. And he just said, I'm going to be just as good as you one day. So you want to make sure and hold on to this jersey. And when you see this attitude in a kid who says, yeah, I'm going to be as good as you one day, it's cute and it's funny, it's kind of interesting, and then you're maybe even rooting on the kid. Like, that'd be awesome. Hopefully uh, you actually have a chance to do that one day. And it's one of those things that's cute until it isn't. And I can't help but think of one of my favorite movie clips of all time, the infamous Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. So go ahead and roll that clip for us. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. Uh, uh, what the heck are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. I better go. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, if coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up. Hot tub with my soulmate. Kill. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. 
So as I said, it's cute when a seven-year-old writes to J.J. Watt, but it's not cute anymore when you're Uncle Rico. And you're looking back on your life and you're thinking, oh, if the coach only would have put me in in the fourth quarter, then I'd be in the hot tub with my soulmate right now. And oftentimes, I think it's easy for us when we look around into our world to, to fall into that mindset. I remember the, the many moments in my athletic career being humbled, but probably the most humbling moment was when I first heard of LeBron James, the now Laker LeBron James, and I saw some high school clips of him when he was a freshman, and I realized LeBron James was younger than me. And I was like, oh my goodness, like that is that moment, whenever that moment is when you realize like for the first time, like, oh no, I'm, don't, I would get destroyed if I went pro in anything Athletic. The problem is when we hold on to some of these ideas and we compare ourselves to those who perhaps are gifted and you're still holding on to that and thinking about, oh, if only things would have been a little better and so we desire time machines and think about all these things that perhaps would make things a little bit better because we look around to see how other people are doing. So Genesis chapter 4 tells us the story of Cain and Abel. So starting in verse 2, Abel kept flocks, and these are Adam and Eve's kids, and Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked on with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So we have this, this presentation of Cain and Abel who present their offerings to God, and for some reason— Cain's offering and sacrifice isn't looked with the same favor as Abel's is. And there's some explanation understanding that perhaps that's because Abel brings a better offering, like the, the first fruits, he's bringing some of his best stuff, and it almost seems like uh, Cain provides just some scraps, like, oh, let me just get this, and doesn't really have much thought about it. And some parts of the New Testament talk about that, that uh, Abel's sacrifice was, was more thought out. That's why God didn't look on, on the same favor as, as he did on Cain's sacrifice. There's also some explanation that perhaps just generally uh, God maybe favors shepherds uh, versus farmers as God continues to choose shepherds continually through the Old Testament. But as you actually just, just read the story as it is without perhaps some other explanation, it, we, as you really think about it, there is no reason given for why God says this, this sacrifice is better. It does list that uh, Abel brought the first fruit, some of the fat portions, but it doesn't say, like, this is why God looked on this sacrifice with favor, and this one, he didn't. So one of the questions that I think we need to think about from this story, and again, we sometimes just try to think about, like, why is it that that happened? What we need to think about is a different question. What happens when someone else gets the blessing? What happens when you realize, as a high schooler, like, you're not going to be better than LeBron James? And this is a question that I think that comes up over and over and over again in our lives, if we're honest, in so many different ways and in so many different forms. Uh, New Testament, or an Old Testament scholar uh, named Gary Anderson says this about this, Genesis, the entire book, is a meditation on the problem of chosenness. Not how to get chosen, but the problem that occurs when someone else besides you is chosen. 
And I think that's right, because Genesis continues to tell these really complex family stories. You know, eventually we're going to have Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, and how he has all this favor from his dad, and his brothers get jealous, and they put him into um, uh, the prison. Think about killing him. We talked about that story a couple weeks ago, and then they're like, oh, we shouldn't kill him. Like, maybe we should just sell him into slavery. That's a nice idea. And so there's all of these things that go on in those families back in that day. But let's be honest, that's not just back in that day. These things still happen in our family, right? If you were to have a conversation with your siblings, if you have a sibling, you would probably be able to say who the chosen one was in your family. And I'm not being, like, I'm not faking it. Like, you, you like, I see a lot of nodding heads. Yeah, you, you, if you have discussions at the family reunions, like, yeah, you, you're the one that, for whatever reason, I see people pointing fingers in here, for whatever reason, like, it just seemed like you had your parents' favor. And still today, there's so much stuff around like middle child syndrome and growing up in that. I'm a middle child, so that explains a lot for a lot of you. Uh, but like you have all of these things that are, that are still very real. It's so interesting that the very beginning of Scripture, it's, it's right at the beginning, it tells this story of someone getting chosen and someone getting mad because that person gets chosen. And it causes this building resentment. And I know for me, as I think about my life, I think about times when, when I've been chosen or when I've been passed over, and it's easy for me to like let that resentment build. And it's moments when I haven't been chosen that I can really vividly remember. I went to elementary school for the first few years at a school in, in downtown Los Angeles. Many of you know that I grew up in this area. I went to school in downtown Los Angeles. And then in fourth grade, uh, we decided, my parents decided to have us go to school more locally. And so I went to an elementary school, new kid at the school in fourth grade. And I did exactly as most kids would at lunchtime. I went out to play kickball. And, you know, you have that story of, of playing kickball out there. And I was the last one chosen for kickball, of course. I really was, yeah, I was really sad. And as that happens, then they're like, all right, so you're like the last one picked and you're gonna kick last. And I walked up to kick and the guy who was my team captain, he said, all right, well, I think I'm gonna run for you. Which really says a lot. Like it's one thing to be picked last. It's another thing to like have somebody like pinch run for you. Like apparently, like I look like I couldn't even uh, run very well. This is actually, this is a picture of me from fifth grade. It's a math video that you can find online. So maybe that has a lot to do with why I was picked last and then had to run. I, you should look it up. It's a great YouTube clip to search my name. You can find it. And I don't know how I got led on TV with that hair looking like that, but that was how... How it was. So this is like fourth grade Brian showing up on this, this kickball field, getting picked last, and then told, like, it apparently doesn't look like you can walk and chew gum at the same time, so let me go ahead and, and run for you uh, so we can make this happen. And in one of the, the, the great like, glorifying moments of my life, I kicked that ball harder than I ever had before, and the person who ran for me easily got a home run, and the other team said, hey, 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 you can't have someone run for you. So they made me re-kick, uh, but this time they backed up. And so I kicked it really far. This time they caught it, but they were backed up. And it was like, all right, I got my respect now. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, the whole thing, yeah. I'm just, it's just therapy, really. This is all just therapy. Um, so, and, and for me, I, I just really distinctly remember. I, I remember who was there. I remember the faces. I, I just remember that moment. And that doesn't leave you. That chosenness never really leaves you. Again, you can think about siblings and how you've interacted with them, you can think about family, you can think about work, that coworker who just always seems to have the boss's favor and you just don't understand why. Or that friend of yours 
who somehow just works like half as hard as you, but lives twice as large? Or that person whose marriage is, is flourishing and yours is struggling? Or that person who is married and you aren't? And it just doesn't make sense. What happens when someone else gets a blessing? What do you do with it? And that's going to happen in all of our lives, throughout our lives. There's going to be moments when you look around and you think, man, like, why is he getting ahead? Or why is she, why does, why does he seem to have, like, this, this favor? And so if we just leave this story to, like, let's try and figure out why God smiled on the sacrifice. No, it's a story about what happens when you get passed over. And what do you do with it? Because God has a warning for Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I think that's a great line and wonderful wisdom from God, who is saying to Cain, yeah, this is hard. It's hard that this has happened, and, you know, you didn't perhaps whatever, like, do the thing that you were supposed to in the right way, but let me just tell you that right now, it doesn't matter. That whole thing doesn't matter. What matters now is what you are allowing to sit in your heart. And let me warn you. It's crouching at your door. And if you act on it, perhaps how you're feeling right now in this moment, it's going to lead you down a terrible path. What do you do when you aren't chosen? What do you do with it internally? Where do you let that go in your heart? You have to be really careful about what's in your heart. I love a comedian who talks about being Irish, and he says, I'm Irish, so all we do is we just let everything happen to us, and we keep it inside until we die. I think, I think that's generally kind of the American way, too. You know, just whatever happens, I'm just going to power through and keep going and just going to let it happen. But God says to Cain, like, you can't pretend like this isn't there. It isn't about you being chosen or not chosen. There are going to be times in your life when you're chosen. There's going to be times when you're not chosen. But what are you going to do with that sin that's crouching at your door. When I graduated uh, from seminary, there was a, a guy who was like in, in my group in graduating class, and he got just an incredible job out of seminary, one that seemed like he was like not qualified for. And I remember thinking, like, I think I'm a better preacher than him. Yeah, we're all that petty. We're the same. We're the same as everybody. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll be honest here. I, I remember like distinctly thinking that, and a few years later, I was talking to a friend about this guy, and uh, my friend said to me, Brian, honestly, it just sounds like you're kind of jealous of him. And I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. Just like, no, that's definitely, that was definitely true. And it's easy for all of us to look at the blessing that someone else has and to be frustrated about our situation and just think, oh, if I only had that thing, then things would be so much better for me. Watch out, because sin is crouching at your door. 
but it can lead you to some very harmful places. What are the seeds that you're allowing to grow in your heart and your spirit? What are the things that you're cultivating that you're allowing to lead you forward? So it's likely you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, but continuing on in in verse 8, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And one of the great lies of scripture, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain allows these feelings of, of jealousy and bitterness to end in him killing his brother. If you're just reading along in the book of Genesis, it's shocking how this immediately happens, right? If you think that your family's messed up, just read the book of Genesis. It's just, it's just crazy. We've gone from Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis chapter 2, naked together and feeling no shame. And then the first murder happens. I think it starts with this seed of discontentment. Why does he have the blessing? Why is he chosen? God, why haven't you chosen me? And not only why haven't you chosen me, why haven't you chosen me in the exact way that I would want you to choose me? Why haven't you done this thing that makes me feel more chosen by you? Jesus tells this fantastic uh, parable in Matthew chapter 20. He talks about this vineyard owner. I'll get to that verse in just a second. But uh, he talks about this, this vineyard owner who goes out to get some workers. And he gathers the, the first workers at 7 a.m. And he starts with this work. And they're out there working. And then they need more workers. Like there's a lot of work left to do. And so he gathers another group of workers at noon. And then he gathers another group of workers at three. Then he gathers another group of workers at five. Then they get off at 6 p.m. And the parable distinctly says that the owner says, what I want you to do is line up the ones who came last first. So those who came at 5 p.m., bring them to the front of the line, then go all the way back to those poor souls who started at 7 a.m. And so... The line is formed in that way. And those who work for just an hour get paid the ones who started working at 7 a.m. Same amount. And as I think about that, like my blood starts to boil. I'm not very good at working with my hands. When I have to work with my hands, I end up sometimes crumpled in a heap. And so I think about if I had been doing that from like 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., I'd expect more. Like, okay, this guy, he's, he's only been here for an hour. Like, if, he, if he, at the front of this line, if he got a day's wage, a denarius, like that was a day's wage, if he got that, then how much more am I going to get? And what's truly frustrating about this story is Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. 
And I want to say as a Jesus follower, what, unfair? Like, I mean, come on. This is what the kingdom of God is like? That it's like a, a really weird system of payment? If I'm the one who was there at seven, I'm just thinking there's, there's no way that I'm going to get the same amount that someone who just was here for an hour. But Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the owner says in Matthew 20, 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous. Are you envious because I'm generous? And this is what we have to realize about the blessing of God. God is generous to all of us. And God is gracious beyond what we could have absolutely ever imagined to all of us. And there are times when you're going to feel like someone's maybe getting a little bit more favor than you. But I think if you really started to think about it, God would say, yeah, I know. Like, that person's getting that unbelievable blessing right now, but think about your Tuesday. Think about the way that you experience the grace of God. Think about how you have experienced in your lifetime my generosity and my love. I don't do it like just to this amount. Like you have experienced the grace and generous nature of me. So please just participate in that. One of the ways that I think we can check this in, in our hearts, in our lives, is by being part of a community. The New Testament talks about how when you are in community with each other, you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. Someone gets a new job or a new car or the Passantians are having a baby this week, and you say, that is awesome. That is like, it's like you are part of my family. This is like a, a gift that, yes, you are receiving, but it's like I'm receiving it in a way as well. I'm celebrating in such a way that I understand like your great joy, and I'm going to try my best to participate with that in you because this is what our God is like. God has been so generous and gracious with me, and so I'm going to celebrate when you get that opportunity as well. The parable of the vineyard teaches us something that is really important that sometimes we forget about grace. Grace is comforting, but it's not always comfortable. Because if you're going to truly be a gracious person, a generous person, like God is generous and gracious, there's going to be someone who shows up to the party, who shows up to church, who you're like, oh man, I don't know. I don't know about that one. But then you have to remember that God could say the same thing about you. That you receive this abundant grace, and so we are just conduits of that to others. I love how the book of Amos opens. Amos is a minor prophet toward the back of the Old Testament. And Amos uh, begins with this, this prophecy, which is a prophecy against Israel, but it starts so brilliantly because he begins by preaching this word of the Lord declared against all the other nations. 
And it starts pretty far out from Israel. And so you can just imagine like Amos beginning to preach in Amos chapter 1. And it's like, let me tell you about the terrible people of Fresno. And then it's like, let me like give you some, some real specifics about the terrible things that they do in Fresno. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, they are kind of bad. And when I was driving through that one time, they, they were mean to me. And then he's like, and, and let's get, you know, just a little bit closer. Like, let's talk about Santa Clarita for a minute. And this is like, yeah, like the, those people, like and you can just, just hear the amens the beginning is the people in the crowd are hearing like, yeah, and it's not those cities. It's like Tyre and Sidon. You can look back and there's just a, a little bit about some of these places and like, oh, they, they do this or they practice that. And everybody's like, amen, Amos. Thank you for saying what needed to be said about Sidon. Like those are just, just some really terrible people. And then Amos, as a really good preacher would do, has everybody's attention and they're excited and they're listening to what he has to say. And let me tell you guys about the really, really bad people and the one that actually has like a whole lot of stuff about them. Let me tell you how bad it is in Israel. It's like, ooh. I, I don't want to talk about that. Let's continue the list of everybody else. Like, let's, let's, let's think about all the other places that, that are terrible in the world and all the, the awful things that people do in other cities, so I don't necessarily have to think about what's actually going on in my life. That's true of all of us. It's easy to think about it and compare ourselves to all these other people and all these things and think about why is that person blessed and I'm not, or why is that person experiencing favor in this moment and I'm not, and God, I think, just wants to look at you and say to you and to me, you have my favor you're loved by me. That is what needs to define you, and that's the most important thing. You are chosen and loved by me. And that must be what defines you. I love how New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says this. He says this about our understanding of grace. We focus too much on the past and future sense of salvation, that we are saved and one day we will receive eternal life from God. And I think that's really true. We talk about our moment of baptism, and that's a really important, significant thing. And if you haven't been baptized, I'd love to, to chat with you about that. Those are really important things. And we think about like one day with God, we're following God with our lives as well as we can now so we can one day like be united with God. Once again, those are true and important parts of our faith. But we need to recognize the present tense of salvation. If we understand salvation as a lifelong process of being saved, we recover the Bible's big vision for this word. Salvation isn't just about when you got baptized once or one day when you're going to be reunited with God. What is God saving you from right now in this present moment? And if you think about it that way, I think it's so much easier to celebrate others and not try to compare yourself all the time to the things that they're doing or the ways that they've received God's favor in a given moment. Because as Jesus would say, when you're carrying around a huge plank and just like hitting people at the party with the huge plank that you have in your eye and thinking just about the little specks, I can't believe he got a new car and he has this thing in his life, or I can't believe that somehow he afforded a house in L.A. How does that even make sense? 
and you think about these things, like, and, and especially in LA, like I know you all in, in your careers, you deal with way more rejection than I do. It's unbelievable when I hear some of your stories and the ways that you, know, like, you can compare yourself to different people at your level. That's a very LA thing that happens. But when you see the favor of God on someone else, can you say, God, I, I'm celebrating with them? God, perhaps I'm praying. I would like to receive that favor one day myself. But in this moment, God, I'm celebrating with them. Because I know that over and over again, you choose me. Even when I don't deserve it. What would it look like for you as you look into your world, as you think about this story, which is very ancient, but so applicable. As you think about the relationships in your family, your friends, and your coworkers, what would it look like for you to just really celebrate the things that God is doing for those people? Because God's grace isn't scarce. Don't be envious because God is generous.